welcome to this week's episode of the Horrible Things Podcast. This is a show where we talk about true crime, man-made disasters, and everything that can basically just like make you cringe and maybe even think, wow, what is what is this world we live in? Um, I'm the host of this podcast. My name is Emma Sexton, and today I'm joined by... My name is Steven Wright. <laughs> I like that. I need to save that as a sound on my board <laughs> so I can just play it. Every time a new guest comes on, it just says, my name is Steven, right? And they're like, huh? My name. They should finish it. Like, my name is Kimmy. <laughs> Kimmy Fatone. Okay. Guys. That was a that was a Childish Gambino Redbone reference. I didn't. Oh, yes. Okay. I saw a TikTok. Oh, dear. Where this sister's playing it and the kid goes, yeah, boy, yeah, boy. And yeah. That's excellent. I was feeling it. Okay, so guys, for those of you who don't know, who just popped in, who aren't sure what you're getting yourselves into because this is the episode that has the amazing interview with Eric Glisson that I'm hoping is amazing because as of the time of recording, it hasn't happened yet. Beep, but, beep, beep, beep. you know, this is me manifesting the future. It's going to be an amazing interview and it's at the end of this episode. So if you're just here for that, whatever, skip past this. But if you're interested in knowing what actually happened to Eric Glisson and what happened in his case that we didn't tell you last week because it's a part one, this is for you. This is part two. We're going to finish what we started. Okay, and if you care, <laughs> which you're you should, stick around, stick around, stick around, because it's extra special. If you're cool, yeah. you think it's cool to not care? <laughs> you think it's cool to just be like, I don't care about anything but uh, myself? Well, it's not. It's very not cool. Yeah, actually. Okay, idiots. So we're gonna get. <laughs> I just insult <laughs> insult the guest. That's how I got them to stick around for fifty episodes. Just insults every i hate my fans (laughs) i feel like there was a celebrity who said that they didn't they thought their fans were annoying and then they didn't have any more fans after that so (laughs) that's a life lesson if i ever heard one marketing 101 don't bite the hand that feeds you anyway (laughs) (laughs) remember we said we're gonna make this quick Yeah, okay. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) boy. Oh, my gosh. It's because this room is hot and there's no air conditioning. That's why we're acting like this. Okay, but let's get right into the case. We're talking about Eric Glisson. Quick recap from last time. He was imprisoned at age 20 for a double homicide, only charged for one of the homicides of a cab driver who died in the Bronx. His murder was actually found to be committed by a gang called Sex Money Murderer, but six people called the Bronx Six, including Eric Glisson, were imprisoned for 18 years for the crime we're just getting to the part like we just got into the part where eric figured out who the murderer was and that the police very possibly but maybe not covered it up so we're gonna move forward from there from the point that eric knows who committed the murder what so yes dang let's go back it's 2012 eric just found out actually no it's not 2012 It's a little before 2012, but it's in the 2010s. Eric just found out who actually committed the murder that he has been imprisoned for for 16 years. And he gets all his evidence from the phone records of the cab driver whose phone was stolen. And he writes a letter to the DA. um, And he's uh, 
for the state of New York. And he's basically like, here, I'm completely innocent. I've been telling you guys I'm innocent for years. You didn't believe me. Here's the evidence. And by complete luck, the letter that he sends ends up going to a man named John O'Malley, who's a federal investigator with the DA's office. And I'm pretty sure John O'Malley is a character in Grey's Anatomy. But that's a separate matter. Oh, my gosh. So he's a federal investigator with the DA's office. So O'Malley opens this letter and he reads all about what Eric had found. And he immediately goes to Sing Sing Correctional Facility where Eric's being held. And he goes to Eric's cell and he apologizes to him. This is in 2012. He goes to his cell. He apologizes to him because he says, I know that you didn't commit the crime. And that's basically the first time that Eric hears from somebody high up that they know that he didn't commit the crime. And so O'Malley says this because, like I said, it's complete luck that this letter ends up with John O'Malley because he Mm. had just sent it to the DA. But O'Malley actually, in the 90s, he had gotten a confession from Rodriguez and Vega, the two sex money murder people who were involved in the shooting of the cab driver. He had gotten a confession from them for the shooting, but he'd never had a case to connect it to because the real murder was closed with the arrest of Eric Glisson in 2003. He like had gotten this confession and it had already been closed in the 90s. So it had been eight years since the case had been closed. So despite the fact that he had a confession to this murder, which was in perfect detail and they knew everything about the crab driver and they were the ones who had the phone calls connecting them. Despite that, he didn't have a case. So then all of a sudden he gets this letter from Eric Glisson and everything makes sense. He can put the pieces together. Mm. And now he has circum like not circumstantial evidence, hard evidence, a confession, phone records, things that actually should hold up in court, not Data. like one witness testimony. So Basically, O'Malley had also gone to the 43rd precinct and had been told, hey, there's no record of the crime. We don't have that crime here when he had gotten the confession in 2003 because they had also said this is where it was committed. Sound view. So that's the 43rd precinct. He goes there. They say, they, sorry, we can't help you again for the third time since Taking people L's. have been trying to help them. And basically, O'Malley gets this letter and he goes into action. And Eric Glisson has this great quote where he's talking about when he met John O'Malley, he knew that it was someone who wanted to help him. Like this was a guy who was going to actually try to make things right for him. So O'Malley goes straight to the courts in the Bronx and in an affidavit, he basically says, here's everything I know. I know for a fact that Eric Glisson and the other people are innocent and here's all this evidence that i have that it's actually these two guys rodriguez and vega who committed the murder and that's in an affidavit by a federal investigator which despite not having any appeals left is enough that the bronx court system reopens eric glisten's case at long last in 2012 after literally just too many years 18 actually at this point it's like 16 and a half years they but finally, who's counting? but who's yeah, <laughs> but who's counting in the Bronx County Court system? So they, he addresses his affidavit, and because of that the case gets reopened. It's been like literally almost eighteen years, and Peter Cross gets called by John O'Malley after doing this affidavit, and basically he gets told the attorney's office knows that your guy's innocent. Like we know that your guy's innocent, and so this created like 
basically a whole new start for Eric Glisson, who up until this point had had like no help in getting his case open. Now he has a lawyer and he also has a guy from uh, who's a federal investigator who wants to help him, like wants to make sure that he doesn't stay in prison any longer for this. So after Peter Cross goes in and tells Eric that like, hey, they reopened your case. We want to they're going to reconsider in front of a judge. He Eric created this like wall of hope in his cell. So he printed Mm. out a bunch of pictures of people who had been wrongly convicted, put in jail and then had been released. And he had them in his cell, like on one of the walls. And he would like he showed Dateline. He was like, here, this is my wall of hope because I'm going to be like these people, basically. So Cross and this uh, woman named Charmaine Chester, who's his assistant with an amazing name. And she was really <laughs> close with Eric Glisson because they'd been working on the case for six years by the point that they finally get the case reopened. Uh, she's like super close with them, referred to him as like her younger brother. Mm. And they'd been working on his case for six years. They show up to court and they argue their case to the judge. And what happens with all this evidence? No, don't tell me. Come the on. prosecutors refused to admit in court that they had made a mistake. Can I speak imprisoned. to the manager? <laughs> we need a Karen in this. 43rd Precinct. I am speak. I need to speak to a manager. Like, who is your boss? <laughs> it's these Gosh. people. Jeez, Chuck E. Cheese. They're and, their own bosses. That's and so the prosecutor comes in, refuses to admit in court that they had done anything wrong. The DA's office doesn't want to admit yet that they've done anything wrong. Basically, their whole thing is... We need one more month to keep investigating and keep Eric in prison. We we need one more month to investigate, then we'll come back. And the judge is like, okay. So Eric already, people know he's innocent by that point, basically. But they're like, we need to figure out a way to get this together. So they don't let him out. He stays in prison for another month. Obviously, he's pissed off about this because he wants to get out of jail for a place he's been for 18 years for no reason. Mm Mm-hmm. So the DA's office, eventually in October, they say, okay, we're ready to make a deal with Eric about conditions for his release. Like we want to do a conditional release while we keep investigating, which Eric, great guy. He was just like happy to be able to, uh, that he was getting a release at all. Like he was going to be able to leave, but I was pissed off because I was like conditional release. What do you mean conditional release? You should be on your knees begging for this man's forgiveness right now. Like, are you kidding? Conditional release? On one condition, you get like (sighs) unlimited uh, McDonald's for life and you get like, you should get your gas paid, you know, your gas and your bills and your house paid for life. Yeah. You should win the lottery. On one condition, you win the lottery. Yeah, it's crazy. So basically in October, they say, we're going to do a conditional dismissal and we're going to vacate the conviction against him. That's huge. So that's great. They tell him he's going to be released by like the 13th. So, yay, Eric is getting out of they prison. They can't do that finally. that day? They no, can't just they say can't. Like, you're out? Nope. Nope. Oh my gosh. You're be like, hey, you're Dude, getting out of prison. This is Next another month. thing. Like, not only did the justice system mess up by putting him in there to begin with, but then it took so long after they knew he was innocent to get him out of prison. Like months. Like this is happening in October and he doesn't get out until January yikes yeah so that's also what's problem. another three months <laughs> <sighs> oh gosh it makes me upset for him like yeah. i feel like that would be the most frustrating thing is being like you guys know i shouldn't be in here so get me out get me out of here right now i did, already did all the work for you get me out so he's still behind bars after you're innocent and you're gonna get a your con- conviction vacated still in prison for another month after that and 
he just needs to get out. And I wrote in my notes, our justice system can be effed up. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's been a long time. Now we're in January, 2013. And four months after O'Malley gives his affidavit, Eric uh, is brought into court in the Bronx after being in a holding cell. Literally, he went to the court to get his conviction vacated and they put him in a holding cell before he got to go up in front of the judge. Makes sense. (sighs) It's so frustrating. So Eric Glisson is brought to court with Kathy Watkins, who is the woman of the Bronx Six, who was also charged in the exact same murder as Eric. And they get brought to court together in front of the judge. And he said that when they got to court, they looked at each other and they were like, what are you here for? And she's like, she's like, oh, I'm, you know, I was charged in this murder. And he's like, oh, same. And they (laughs) didn't even know each other. And they supposedly killed someone together. And they're like walking together into the court and they're like, where, when are they splitting off? Like, yeah, (laughs) they're like, it's basically the first time they've ever met each other. And they're, but they have been connected for quite a while. Exactly. Yikes. So this story sucks, by the way. I'm (laughs) sorry. (laughs) It does. It really does. So they go into the courtroom together not knowing each other and they've got the judge they've got their lawyers and then you have the assistant da with the prosecution and the assistant da agrees to release them as long as glisten and watkins wear ankle monitors while they continue to investigate this possible injustice um so that's ridiculous anyway but at this point like they just want to be out of prison so i like this quote though i so Eric Glisson did actually on Reddit, like an ask me anything. Ooh, I'm gonna go see that. <clears throat> yeah. And someone asked him about like the prosecution and he asked if somebody asked if they s- seemed like they were, they felt bad about what happened. And this is what he said, quote, they didn't say anything. I went up to the assistant DA who opposed every appeal that I filed and I shook her hand and told her it was finally nice to meet my long-term nemesis. And she's won a lot of battles, but I just won the war. Seemed to me she put her head down in shame. Mm. So like that gave that gave me chills too. Just like she's won a lot of battles, but I won the war. Like yes, wow. you did. Yes, you did. So after eighteen years in prison in Sing Sing Correctional Facility, in there since he was twenty years old, now almost forty, Eric Glisson is out of prison. He takes his first steps Yay. in into New York and he's out of prison. And he said in his interviews right after that it was like his own effort and determination that got him out as long along with his lawyers who like really believed in him. And by January, this happened actually a little earlier than January 2013. We're still in 2012 when this happens. And so in January thir- 2013, the convictions for all of the Bronx Six are completely vacated and they're all let out of prison. So Israel Vasquez, Carlos Perez, uh, Devin Ares, and he, those three were convicted for um, both murders, as well as Michael Cosme. And then Eric Glisson and Kathy Watkins were only uh, convicted for the one murder. All six of them get out of jail. Cool. And Denise Raymond's killer is never brought to justice because of this, which is just another, like the icing on top of how crappy it is, is the fact that not only did they wrongly imprison six people, but they let a murderer of this woman who was literally killed in her apartment go free. Like not a robbery, an actual like personal killing job. Well done guys. So her murderer is never arrested. Donnelly and Aello are now retired, so there was nothing they could really do to them. Like, they didn't get in trouble 
whatsoever for this. And the attorneys denied that the detectives falsified documents or tried to prevent any evidence from seeing the light of day. So even though they're out, they're basically just like not taking responsibility for anything. Hmm. But one of the great things about the documentary that I watched is Eric gets out of prison and then they don't like leave him. They go, the filmmakers like went with him and they got to see him like use a smartphone for the very first time wow. because he was in jail from 95 to 2012. Like a lot of things changed. So he's used as a smartphone for the first time. He had lamb chops for his first meal out of prison. Uh, and then his lawyer got him a super nice hotel room for his first night out of jail. And wow. he said that uh, when he like laid in the bed, he started crying because he's like, I've been sleeping on a metal frame for 18 years. Wow. So he is out and he gets reunited with his daughter, Cynthia, who's almost 18 years old when he comes out of prison. And two days after he gets released from jail, really quick, I just have to say like that is so messed up. The fact yeah. that he, he went to jail a week after his kid was born and missed her entire childhood. Like she was an adult when he got out. Yeah, that really sucks. For no reason, for bad police work, they ruined that relationship mm -hmm. for nothing. Mm -hmm. And he'll never get to redo his kid's childhood. Like he, he just missed it. He just misses it because somebody messed up. The positive thing, though, there's no positive, but um, I think what his daughter probably recognizes is that his his love for her manifested itself in just his hard work to get out because probably more than anything, he wanted to be with her. He did. He said that in the Reddit AMA, too. He said that like people were like, would you miss the most? And he said, my daughter. Yeah. And two days after he's released from Sing Sing, like I said, he'd been taking a lot of courses while he was in jail. So... Two days after he gets released, he goes back to school and he wow. gets his diploma in, he gets a bachelor's of behavioral science from Mercy College. So, so he's cool. a college graduate. And eventually, uh, after a couple of years, he opened up his own business, which was a juice bar in New York called A Fresh Take. And he opened it with the assistant of his lawyer, who he had become really close to while he was in prison. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So he like completely turned his life around, basically. And he said, I took these two quotes from him because the thing that I found like also just so remarkable about him is the fact that like, I feel like it would be so easy to just come out and hate the world and just be so pissed because you really got the short stick for no reason. Like to just be so mad at everyone and everything and just go out full of bitterness and anger. But to quotes that he said he said i'm no longer the victim i'm the victor and then he also said i don't have any animosity against anyone at this point like he came out and he's just so positive so willing to talk about what happened to him so kind to people like he's just honestly a great person like that something that didn't deserve to happen to him happened to him wisdom but yeah wisdom. he took it with such stride and it's it's truly remarkable because I know if it was me, I wouldn't, I would not handle that as gracefully as he did. And you couldn't, bl yeah, you can't blame him either. You know, like, no. oh, he's really pissed off. Well, yeah. So are we. And it didn't even happen to us. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I just think he's like a really inspirational person because it's like, wow, if he's not getting angry about that, I really don't have a right to get mad about 
my sister stealing my shirt or something stupid like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it really puts into perspective yeah. your anger to just be like, wow, he wasn't mad. He recognized the, um, the uh, just fleeting nature of life and our existence and what we have and what we don't have. And, you know, you only have so much energy to give. So what are you going to put that energy towards? And I guess somehow he found it in himself to go towards, put that towards reconciliation and, and, and peace. And I wouldn't blame him if he was pissed, but I, I commend his, his ability to like do the work to get to that, that place. He's amazing. I'm sure it wasn't always like that. Probably you know? not. And I'm sure there's probably moments, you know, Kai, Kai talks about, um, it's called uh, adjustment issues. So a lot of people, like when kids are in foster care, let's just say they go to a new home, it's tough because they have adjustment issues. Because even if you're in a bad situation, adjusting to the new normal can be difficult. Especially if you missed like 18 years of technological yeah. advancements and you're trying yeah. to find your way to, like he came out almost 40, never had a credit card. Like Yeah. We're, I mean, me and Kai, like she just graduated college and they're not like so much issues, um, but we're having adjustments to just her not being in school all the time. And now we're now, since we're home so much, we have so much time together pretty much all day, every day. So we're like, okay, what do we do with this 24 seven? And how do we orient ourselves to where, okay, now we have a lot of time. We don't have to be so, oh, I got to spend time with you. Cause I don't get a lot. You know, there's just those types of adjustments. So, and that's a good thing. So adjusting, from being in, in such a low place and being treated so unfairly and so poorly, I can't. I can't believe. I. All, I guess all I could say, from the what little I know of 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 psychology or whatever, just literally just by living with someone who does it for a living, um, he must have done a ton, a ton, a ton of work to get to that place yeah. because that's really remarkable and it takes a lot to get there. A hundred percent, hundred percent. He's like, I think to have that positive of a mental state after what he'd been through, like it makes me happy to see a lot of his like wording just being like, I won, I won. Because yeah. it would be so easy to be like, I lost out on 18 years. I missed this. I missed that. I lost out on this. I lost out on that. But instead his thinking is like, I won. I'm here now. So yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Super yeah. crazy, amazing person. But let's get to some of the good stuff here too. Yes. The money. Let's talk about the money. Obviously, no amount of money is mm. worth giving up 18 years of your life. And he talked about that too in his, uh, also in his AMA. He said, like, what I went through, it's not worth any money, amount of money. Like, it's yeah. not, it's not worth it. From an outsider perspective, I want them to pay. <laughs> I want him to get all the money. I want him to get it all. So Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. So he and the rest of the Bronx six, they sued the state and they sued the city, which good on them. You yeah. deserve that. So they sued the state and the state gave them $3.9 million each. Too low. For wrongful imprisonment. Well, all right. New York city gave them $8 million each in a settlement that was reached in two uh, 2016. So super recent. So total, they each got about like $11 million. Again, not worth it. 
I think they should have at least gotten $18 million because that's how many years they all spent in prison. But That should know, be the tip. That should be what they tip <laughs> on top of, of their bill. It's just ridiculous. But yeah, yeah it's... Ugh. But I'm glad that they at least like acknowledged the fact that, hey, we wronged you guys like super bad. Here's millions of dollars to make up for it. Yeah. So total of just the city paid $40 million between the six of them. And yeah, should they have gotten more? Probably. Will any amount be enough? Probably not. No. But he's now gotten uh, married. He just, mm. he recently got married, I think a couple years ago. And he has three adorable little girls that he's had with his wife. And he still has a pretty good relationship with his daughter, Cynthia, which I have seen from his Instagram because not trying to flex. He follows me on Instagram. Whoa. I, <laughs> I met him in my class and I was like, what's your Instagram? I followed him. <laughs> but it's honestly it's not a like flex when your muscles are just so big that they're popping out of the, the shirt, you know, like the biceps. So... Well, honestly, it's just cool because, like, I see every time I see his posts, which he'll post about, like, his daughters or something like that. Every time I see his posts, it just reminds me that, like, it's possible to be a good person and, like, have joyful experiences even when things have gone terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, he is just a living reminder of, like, there are people out there who are much better people than I am and I should strive to be. I think he recognizes the true power and in the ideology that, uh, you know, nobody can dictate your joy. Yeah. I think that's powerful. I think that's from my worldview. I think that's one of the big, the big points. And, in, in, in what I believe is like, regardless of COVID or racial injustice, and I lament and I have sorrow, deep seated sorrow for what's happening in the world. There is something to find gratitude in. And there's, that still cannot dictate whether or not I experience joy and uh, he seems to have that pretty locked down. Yeah. No, he's, you're right. He's totally awesome. And he has every right to be pissed, like to be angry, bitter, mad, sad. Like, yeah, if anyone does, he has does. every right. But he's obviously beyond that, which 100%. is really cool. And I would like to say that, you know, this only ever happened to Eric Glisson. It only ever happened to these six people. But the honest truth is that this was an issue. It's still an issue Happens today. every day, probably. And of all the people convicted of crimes who are in prison in the U.S., it's estimated that between 1% to 2% are actually innocent of their crimes. And that might seem like, oh, 1% to 2%, it's a low number. And that's good. It should, I'm glad it's not higher than that. But the fact of the matter is that there's 2.3 million people in prison. So if even only one to 2% of those people are innocent. That means there's between 20,000 to 46,000 innocent people in prison right now. Some even possibly. Yeah. Like think about that. Think about 20,000 people. It's, it's not nothing, even though it's 1%. And (laughs) the next thing I wrote in my notes is, could it be because some police officers are too lazy to do their jobs? (laughs) Maybe, but the fact of the matter is that a lot of this happens not only because of bad police work, but also because of racial injustice, because of flaws in the system, because of uh, just, you know, there's a million circumstances. But the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of people who are imprisoned unjustly, like for no reason. And prison, not a good place to be. I'm pretty sure if you think to yourself right now, what if something happened and I got put in prison for a crime I didn't do? It would be important to you too if it happened to someone close to you or you know anything like that it's just 
it could happen to anyone. I visited one once. Really? Yeah, I did a visit. And uh, I, I, yeah, walking out of it, I was just like, this isn't right. This is not a rehabilitation facility. And I thought, because uh, I went with an organization that helps a lot like this. Um, what was the nun's name? Um, uh, Sister Chan. It's like, uh, it's not Catholic affiliated, but it's kind of the same type of thing. And uh, I, I visited a cell block actually that was like really, really progressively kind and polite, um, remarkable place. But still, walking out of that experience, I just thought, okay, I think if we progress as as a society, like this whole thing needs to change. Yeah, I think it's interesting too, because while I I think like it is disgusting that there's that many people who are wrongly imprisoned, like it, it makes me really just sad. Yeah. At the same time. I'm not, you don't see me crying any tears for the child rapist that's yeah. in prison or the like guy who murdered three people. Like I have no tears for those people. I'm not upset that they're getting treated badly. Like, because I think in some ways prison definitely is meant to be a punishment like for yeah. your crimes. And so it's, it's interesting because where you're like some people, I look at them, maybe this is because I'm biased and a human being and don't, you know, have my ideologies hundred percent straight in my mind, but maybe that's because I'm, I look at some people, I read about their crimes. I talk about them and I say, screw that guy. I yeah. want them in prison for the rest of their life and I want them to suffer. And then I look at some people like Eric who get put in prison for no reason, only because our justice system doesn't work perfectly. And I just think, should we make it better for those few people, like make it better for everyone, for the few people, not few, I guess, 20,000 to 46,000 people we're in there for no reason. And it's like, the fact of the matter is the justice system we have is not, it's not perfect to begin with. And that's the problem. Like we need to go back to the basics and be like, okay, like what you were saying in the last episode, why don't, why, how can someone get arrested on circumstantial evidence that is not concrete whatsoever that is easily disproven and can put in jail for 18 years. Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. And like, let's go back. Let's make sure that the people we put in prison are hundred percent guilty. And it's not based on any sort of prejudice. There's a, there's a, on the wire, it's a great show on HBO. There's a kid by the name of Wallace. who's like 14. He dropped out of school and he's selling drugs on the corner in the pit. Um, and uh, the pit is like the area. It's like the really bad area. It's like the low rise buildings, that, you know? And, um, yeah, he sells drugs. And like you learn like halfway through the season, he's raising his six siblings and getting them up for school. And, oh, he had to drop out. Oh, and he's illegally siphoning electricity into his house from this wire. And, oh, that's because he's literally 14 taking care of his siblings because his parents are on drugs. Or, you know, you see his parents and they're just like drunks, you know, and you go, okay, I... That makes sense because you got to make the decision. Like, does your little sister eat or not? And them eating relies on you doing something illegal or not. That's pretty, that's a pretty big choice for a 14 year old. Yeah. And it makes sense. And you have compassion for that situation because truthfully, I did not, I don't blame this kid for doing that because it's like, okay, what else is he going to do? So we are doing everything to punish these acts. And I think they should be punished. Some more than others. Some more than others, of course. But 
I would re- I really hope that like the redemption, I've effed up so many times in my life. I didn't commit armed robbery, but let's say that, that someone did. I would love to hear a story of redemption. So we're like, this guy effed up big time, just totally, totally screwed up big time. But um, now has three kids and um, owns a bakery and, you know, contributes to his community and uh, hires young kids to take, like, to take them off the streets so that they're not doing this. And he pay- that would be a great story. Yeah. And then those 15 kids that he hires no longer grow up in poverty, no longer have kids who grow up in poverty, no longer, you know, like that, you talk about the butterfly effect that happens. If that just happens, just, just a generation, just a percentage, you would see remarkable change in our society. I feel like, but that's just the idealist in me. And I'm a hopeful person. And I get that. And I think also a lot of times people who do commit, for example, serial killers or people who are rapists, like sometimes, yes, they're just horrible. Well, they're always just bad people. Yeah. But a lot of times I feel like it also has to do with mental issues, like, or even just being like more so sociopathic or psychotic or something like that, like in the actual medical sense where it's like, maybe we would benefit from also having a wider range of like who needs to be rehabilitated because they have mental health issues or because- Widely known fact, most people who become serial killers or commit violent crimes had pretty messed up childhoods. Yes. So it's like, how do we rehabilitate these people? Like, obviously, it's not safe for them to ever not be in a facility, to ever like be out on the street again. And we need to prioritize like people who could be harmed for no reason. But at the same time, like, can we do something besides keeping them in like a little box that could help us figure out like... Maybe if we put people in a mental institution who have childhood trauma that made them commit violent crimes, maybe then we could figure out like, here's a way we can start to prevent that. Or here's a way we can treat certain disorders or anything that could make people more prone to commit violent crimes, like rather than just prison. Like there's a lot to be learned. I don't think a guy who sold Coke should be in the same place as a guy who like killed three people. Yeah. Very different. You know, and, and, uh, you know, we talk about how do we stop serial killers or like, what do we do with the serial killers? Well, I think it'd be cool if, um, if we started developing skills, because we think we know everything right now. You know, we think we know everything about medicine. We think we know everything about technology. Like you name it. We think we know everything about it. But in 50 years, they're going to look at us like, oh my gosh, they had no idea what they were doing. They were idiots. And I hope that's true because that means progress is happening. But, but is there a world where we are taking preemptive measures and recognizing and understand these patterns of people who lead down to that lead into this lifestyle. And we, we, we mitigate that early. Yeah. Like, is there a world where that exists? I think so. Do I know how to do it? I don't know. My wife probably does, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's super interesting. Prison. That's a topic. And I also wanted to quickly mention that um, there's some organizations which I think are really cool, really important, really great to support, um, such as like the Innocence Project, which I don't know if you've ever heard of the Innocence Mm. Project, but it's basically an organization that hires lawyers and people who help get those wrongly convicted and give them counsel and give them legal services to help get them out of prison. And I think they've gotten like more than 15 people exonerated for their crimes. Wow. And, And they say that there's been more than 850 people exonerated from their crimes since the since 1985. So like 
there's literally hundreds of people probably definitely still who are in prison for crimes they haven't committed and like organizations like the innocence project are really helping to like make sure that people don't sit in jail for something they didn't do so if you want to support them i think it's absolutely great but i definitely equal think, justice initiative brian yeah. stevenson yeah he does that and that's yeah yeah and i think it's just important like if you want to support something like that i think it's incredible i personally like love to support things like the innocence project especially knowing more about this but i think the first step is just like for all of us kind of just being like okay this happens let's yeah. start there with realizing this happens and it's kind of i'm interested to hear from eric himself and just see like what his perspective is on all of this because it's crazy yeah life is crazy his life is crazy yeah and I hope you guys have enjoyed this like different kind of story, this different take, a wrongful imprisonment story, because I think they are super important to talk about. And also just like, this is true crime for sure. For sure. Yeah. Because I really commend your ability to, uh, to, to kind of just be inventive in the way that you kind of oriented this whole thing, because you could be like, Oh, that has nothing to do with it. With, with what's with racial injustice happening. It's just true crime. But I, I really admire and appreciate the way that you kind of were introspective and, and thought, okay, what, what are the things that I do? And what are my interests? And how can I be the one person who has a podcast on uh, true crime as it pertains to s- racial injustice? You know, <laughs> like, I think that's really cool. I think that's really smart. I think it's really wise. Um, I think it's very well-rounded that that's something that a well-rounded person would do. So I commend Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you being on the show. As you know, you're a widely beloved guest. People <laughs> always ask me to have you back on the show. So Strange. I appreciate you being here. Hey, this is awesome. I don't, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> of course. And right now we're not going to do our usual outro. We're not going to do our usual happy things because right now, very special, like 50th, I guess technically 51st episode edition where I am now going to be transitioning to myself in the future talking to eric glisten which will have been in the past by the time this episode comes out what do you want to say to your future self (laughs) what i want to say emma you better not mess this up okay (laughs) 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 on that note let's transition uh into i guess me again love you guys very much and i hope you enjoy hi how are you hi emma i'm good i'm okay (laughs) it's nice to meet you same here so, so what, is, what is it that you needed? Um, I was just wondering if I could ask you a couple questions about okay. like, life and just ask you, I guess, how you're doing. We On my podcast, we actually just did an episode about you, about what happened to you. And we basically just wanted to ask some questions because people were like, okay, how? no problem. Yeah. So the first one is just like, how are you doing? What's, how's your life now? Like, what? What are you up to? What's going on in your life? Well, um, right now my life is like kind of settling down. Um, I'm trying to get into some like normalcy where everything is in order and I don't have to do much. Yeah. Too much continuous work. So I put things in place that will lead to this point in life. Like with the real estate uh transactions I've done, all the investments, 
it gives me a better tranquil life now where I can spend more time with my daughters and don't have to be out the house as much. Yeah, that's great. And I also wanted to ask you, uh, how is it that you managed to come out of like the experiences that you've had? And like, you just seem like a very happy person, like just treating your kids very well. And just, you know, like you seem to be doing really well. And I just wanted to ask how you manage to stay so positive. Well, my children are are like my, my, my standing rock. I never had my father with me. So me just being there every second I can in their life and showing them that I'm there and they have someone to lean on regardless of what, that, that sustains me. The fact that, that I'm able to overcome all of the, the transgressions and everything that was done against me through the, the justice system was you, you, you can't carry these things with you out that door. When you leave that prison, it's like a new pivot in your life. You move past that. Yeah, you, you do have the memories. You have, you know, a little bit of anger inside of what happened to you, but because you think about all of the years you've lost of your life. But that's not going to help anything. Having animosity, being bitter towards these people is not going to, it's not going to help anyone. Especially not you. You have to move on in life and you have to get past that. And there's new things in your life that distract you from thinking about those things. Yeah. And just even like reading about your life, it's like I'm 19 right now. And I know that you were arrested and went into prison when you were 20 years old. When I was 19. When you were 19, you were arrested? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just... I just turned 19. It's just crazy to me because I think about the fact that like right now, I still feel like I have a lot of growing up to do. So how how did you manage to kind of like, nav- I know you have, you graduated college and like took a bunch of classes and you basically had to grow up on your own in while you were in prison. Like, what was that like? Well, well, when I was in prison, I went to prison without, with, with a fifth grade education. I never even made it to the sixth grade. While in there, um, you have to sit down and you have to regress within yourself. You have to dig deep. You have to find all of these, these demons that are inside you that, that's preventing you from moving forward in life. Doubt, fear, all of these things. I was terrified that I was given a 25 year to, to life sentence. I didn't know, especially after seeing other individuals in there with 38 years, those kind of numbers, and you think, this is me, this is my fate. Most people in there become complacent. Me, I tried to occupy myself with going to different vocations, like small engine repair, computer repair, electrician, carpentry, building maintenance, uh, asbestos removal. And when I started to do that and I started to get the certificates, I said, I can do better. At the time, I didn't have a GED, so I figured I could take an intel study. So I did that. I didn't go to the yard for a few a few months. I stood in, I studied for the test, 
and I passed it on the first try. After that, they had um, Mercy College inside the prison where the, the professors, they come in at 6 o'clock at night. They give classes up until 10 in the school building. So the curriculum and everything is the same. The syllabus, everything is the same as the college. It's just that you don't have the, the technology, the computers to copy and paste. Yeah. To plagiarize. Yeah. And things of that nature. You really have to work. So I got into the college and that, that was my real growth. Educating myself, bettering myself, is continuing to fight because the work wasn't easy. You didn't have all of the things that you have at your, your, your disposal out here. I had to do interlibrary exchanges to get books that I needed for a term paper. And that took weeks. So I learned early on that education was what's going to get me through yeah. this terrible ordeal. So that education showed me that the world is a much bigger place than prison. Yeah, it's really remarkable also that you managed to literally solve the crime that you were put into prison for from uh, without a computer, without any of that. Is I had a typewriter. Yeah, th- it's crazy. It's crazy that you I were able to do that. <laughs> Did as you? As you have something in there, you can you can do a lot of things with just the bare things you have. Don't believe that you need all of these different accessories. You just need yourself. You need to dig deep in yourself. You need to find those those weaknesses. You need to confront them. You need to get past them. Because then you'll be able to overcome anything in life. Was it frustrating to you at all that, like, because after, you know, reading about what you went through and just knowing like I know you used the Freedom of Information Act to eventually get yeah. the documents that helped you solve the case. Was it frustrating to you that like the police could have had those documents a lot easier than it was for you to get them and well, they, still they didn't? did have them. They had they were in the file. But they omitted them from from the, the case record. Yeah. They were so I wasn't able to, to obtain them during trial. But after trial from 1998 to 2012, I constantly submitting FOIA requests for those documents, and at every turn they would deny me on some procedural bar or something, or state that the, the records wasn't wasn't in their file. So when I did finally get that, that was like my one hope, and it had a few names on there that I didn't recognize as, as my co-defendant. So I wrote a letter to the to the U.S. Attorney's Office because we found out that these guys that were named there were in federal custody. Wow! But there was no 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 facility. There was no facility at that they were housed in. There was no time, so it seemed fishy at the at the beginning. Yeah, and also the fact that it's just very interesting that I know. After you sent the letter, that's when you met John O'Malley, right? Yes, he came. He came to the prison to see me. Yeah, and he was trying to help you. It seems like from what you said about him, it seemed like he was pretty much one of the well, first people who was like, "I'm, I'm on your side." 
Well, immediately when you look at him, when you walk into the room and you see this guy, he just looks like a very strict detective. And I was, I was, I was in fear at first. I didn't know who he was, why he was there to see me. And coupled with the fact that he had a large picture of me on the on the table, <laughs> <laughs> so then he, he just asked me a few things. Did I write these letters? And I said yes. And he asked me to sit down, and he told me, "I know you're innocent." So he already had spoke to the individuals that because he had took their profits from them, he was the one who they confessed to, which is strange. Yeah, he's the yeah he's the detective that they confessed to, and the letter wasn't even addressed to him. It was addressed to Helen G. Cantwell, a prosecutor, but she had left the office early on a, a few months before and he had alerted the mailroom that any letters coming in for that's speaking about sex money murder that give them to him and so that's how he got the letter and when he opened it and read it he jumped back his memory of those two individuals who had confessed to him prior that's incredible yeah that's great also that he was I mean, there, that he was there to help you. Cause yes, he was. It seemed like, I mean, just looking through it, it seemed like a lot of people, especially like looking at the assistant DA and all that, were very trying to not uh, help I mean, you. Like, there's other facts that you don't know. They, the prosecutors took the evidence home, the bullets. They took everything home and said that his car was broken into and it was stolen. So we didn't get a chance to use any of that. They had another guy that they said confessed to the crime named Jose Palatino. They had a confession from him early on in the case. And still didn't. And yeah, they still didn't, didn't factor in that I was innocent. Wow. And do you think that, I mean, I think like one of the other big things about this case that just like puzzled me at first was that um, Miriam Tavares, like, she testified against you and then it turned out none of the detectives bothered to check and see if her testimony could be true. Like, why do you because think she... We, we learned that the detective, Michael Donnelly, was having an affair with her. Really? Yeah, I found that out. Uh, we actually contacted her daughter and her son and they they confirmed it. Wow. That's... And allegedly, uh, around the time these two individuals were confessing, uh, Gilbert Vega and uh, Jose Rodriguez, which was around 2002, Miriam Tavares, uh, she was found as allegedly to have a drug overdose, to have died from a drug overdose. But when I got out and we we tried to obtain the the death the death certificate, they stated that it's still pending. The cause of death is pending. Oh wow! So you think it might not have been a drug overdose? No, there's still no there's still no cause of death for her her uh, her demise. It's just ridiculous. Like we're, the... we're putting together a few things right now that we we believe have have substance and. We're going to bring it to light. 
because this case didn't just hinge on arresting some innocent people. There's a lot of things that, that went on behind the scenes. Yeah, the level of incompetence from the police is truly just astounding. Like, it is, I mean... It can happen to anyone. Believe me, it can happen to anyone. I've met so many innocent people. If you look on on the Innocence Project, yeah. daily uh, blog, the guys are getting out every single day. They're getting people out almost every single day. So we do have a, a serious problem with our justice system. But the real problem is we indemnify the police and the prosecutors. That's the problem I've been trying to tell everyone. But they want to complain about individual police and prosecutors. You have to battle them all in a whole because they all work together. And if you remove the indemnification from them and they're personally liable for the, for the act that they, they, they do by in uniform or in public office, if they're held responsible, then they would think twice about doing these things. Think about the taxpayers, how much money they have to dole out with the cities and, and the state to to compensate these people for the, the unjust eviction. Last year, New York City doled out almost $300 million. Because we fund these, 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 these offices. The district attorney's office, their annual budget is like almost... 700 million. I don't see why everyone is complaining about other things. We need to remove the indemnification from the police and the prosecutors and the judges. Yeah. I and can, that would end it. That, you think that would end like wrongful imprisonment in general? It was certainly in a large percentage of it. Yeah. And also... I think the, the police and the prosecutors would think twice about hiding evidence with the fear that it will someday come to light and that they'll be penalized and prosecuted for. Yeah, and I wonder also, like, when you were, when you were in prison, like, when you were talking to these people, especially the people that had the evidence in front of them, when you told them that you were innocent, like, what was their response? What did they say? Or, or I guess even when you were exonerated, like, what did they say to you after they in were... Prison? Well, I, I stood in... I was in the law library a lot, reading all of those law books. Nearly, nearly half the library. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I had to read the Sessions Law because I needed to know the, the legislative intent. Right? When laws are made, it's the legislative intent for this law. Sometimes the prosecutors, the judges, and the, and the, the police misinterpret it. That's, and it just seems amazing to me also that you were literally in prison when you figured all of this out, when you had to do this all by yourself. Like, what did you feel on the day that you got exonerated after you worked so hard? <laughs> Well, I took my case all the way up to the Supreme Court with a writ of habeas corpus with a stack of exhibits like two inches thick. Wow. Accompanying my writ of habeas corpus, I, I had to put it together myself. I had to file my own appeals myself because you don't, you, you're not afforded an attorney. Really? Yes. 
So I had to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And when they denied my writ of habeas corpus, that was my last, my last appeal. And at that time, I was, I was on stage doing rehearsal for a play that I was going to be in. Yeah, Sister Joanna Chan, right? She helped yeah, put those on? Yeah, that story. And um, it just took my spirit away. Receiving that news had me, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I, just, I couldn't just off my, my fate at the moment. I needed to think about it. But at the time, I'm doing rehearsals. So I didn't know how to react. So I explained to, to, to grandma that, you know, what happened. And luckily she was able to, to soothe me a little bit and get me to finish the rehearsal. But when I went back to my cell, I didn't, I cried. I cried. I, um, I just asked myself how I'm going to make it through. And whether I was going to die. Do you think that, like, having her there to help you out was one of the, like, helped you kind of go forward with the case, like, getting a lawyer and all that? Yeah, that did, that lifted a lot of my spirits. It, um, it gave me a new, new fight. But Peter wasn't a criminal attorney. Yeah, I, I read about that. That's <laughs> crazy. You know, his... His sister was incredible because she she did a lot of three-way calls for me. She Googled a lot of things for me. So I was able to to utilize her to get a lot of information. Yeah. That's for six years they helped me. Six years. Six years. They helped and, me. And then you had to wait eight months, right? After even after they knew that you were innocent, you had to wait eight months. And they put me in an ankle monitor. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. They were like, Remember, "Yeah, I was in school at the time. I was in Mercy College in there." So when they released me two days later, I was on the campus back out here in the same classes of the professors that I was taking in there. Yeah, and then you got your degree, right? In behavior. Behavioral sciences? Well, six, yeah, six, I graduated six months later. I had nine classes. Wow. To finish my bachelor's, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to wait till next the next year. So I asked the, the the president if if I can do those nine classes in one semester. Oh my gosh! As a college student, said, that yeah. sounds insane. <laughs> I just got out of prison two days before. Yeah, that's and I'm oh my gosh. Nine classes one semester. I, <laughs> I know she must have thought I was crazy. Yeah, when I'm taking five classes, I'm like, wow, this is a lot. I can't imagine taking nine. <laughs> yeah, I graduated six months later with a 3.8. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. That's hard. I want to go back Man, that's to hard school work. now, but I don't, I don't, I don't see that, that school would be the same anymore. Yeah. A little bit different because of the pandemic and you know a lot of the things is going to it's not going to have the same atmosphere. Yeah, we're doing um online classes at my school for next semester, so it's really it doesn't have the same feel as when you are going to yeah, college normally in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So just just adjust yourself. Yeah, adjust yourself as much as you can. Deal with it. Listen, no problem. Every problem has an expiration date. 
Yeah. Every, every problem has an expiration date. That's true. So you just got to deal with it for that, that time and it get past it. I also just, I wanted to ask you, um, have you gone back to the area near Sing Sing or anywhere near there since you got out? Or have you been just... Yeah, go see my friends. I have to find Adrian Velasquez. That's great. He's also innocent. John Adrian Velasquez. Okay, I was going to ask you. He's also innocent. Do you think there's more people who are in prison that are innocent than we think, like generally? Yes, yes. Look up these guys. Jeffrey Deskovic, he was my neighbor. And he... He just became an attorney. He just passed the bar. (laughs) That's awesome. My other friend, Keon Katibi, he just passed the bar. That's, it's yeah, frightening to Dennis think about. My friend Dennis, he, he created, he helped create Citizen Act. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, yeah, these guys are really, they're into music. A lot of my friends are into music. All of the innocent guys who got out, they the, the, even the, a lot of friends that, that made it out on parole. You know, I met some of the most autistic men in prison. Very intelligent. They made mistakes. So I've watched them when they come out. Lawrence just interviewed uh, Oprah Winfrey. Oh, my gosh. For his job for Marshall Project. He just bought a, a four hundred and something thousand dollar house. He's been out on parole for one year. He's flying across the country going to do all of these talks. He's being paid almost six thousand dollars a talk. So that's showing you that it it doesn't matter what you've been through. When you get that opportunity and that shot, you better take it and run with it. So you can come from anything. You can come from the dust, the dirt. It's about who you are inside and how much passion and and ambition you have in life to progress. Because humans are progressive. We're always progressive. So these guys, I've met them in prison, and I've seen that they they've got into the. Most of them have master's degree programs, master's degrees because they finished their masters in there. And they're coming home, and the recidivism rate is zero. It's just amazing how much you don't hear about, like, in... They don't tell you about that. Look up Jeffrey Deskovic. If you have a computer, check Jeffrey Deskovic. Keon Kadiri, look up uh, Jabal Collins. My friend Jabal Collins, when we were in the law library, he was helping so many guys with with their case and getting them out. And he couldn't get himself out, but he found a way. He he had his mother do a three-way call. He located the witness in his case, had his mother do a three-way call. While she was recording, he was he was in, in, impersonating an investigator from the Brooklyn uh, District Attorney's Office, telling the witness that they lost the files in the 9-11 fire and they had to reconstruct the case. And the witness told him he didn't know what to tell him because they told him everything to say. It's, and so he got out, 
And a week after that, he was addressing the New York Bar Association on how to properly file rid of habeas corpus in federal court. Smart guy. Yeah. His name is Jabbar Collins. That's, it's really interesting, I think, also just to see, like, how, I guess right now, especially, like, public view of prison and the police is changing so much, like, day to day. Everyone is starting to look more and be like, okay, maybe not everyone that goes to prison is guilty. Listen, not everyone that goes to prison is guilty, but they are guilty people in there. There's some that that that's supposed to be in there because they committed a crime. The fact that you committed the crime don't define who you are after you pay your debt to society. You see, one of the problems with the parole board was that every time you went up for parole, they would say they would uh, give you extra time for the nature of the crime, which will never change. Yeah, the nature of the crime will never change. So. For them to use that as a as an excuse to continue to keep you in prison, to give you two extra years and two extra years and two extra years, it's saddening because this is the very system that we're supposed to trust in to rehabilitate. There's two choices you can make in prison. You could either work on building yourself or you could work on maintaining the prison. Out in the yard, getting high, drinking, getting involved with gangs. They have alternatives. They have vocational programs. They have all type of theater programs, horticulture. You can learn. You can use these things as tools when you get out. You can get your but degree. But some people get complacent and they get caught up inside of there and next thing you know, they're involved with gangs, they're getting high, they're sniffing heroin, and they come back out with those habits. And they go right back. Yeah, it's a... So, it's about who you are when you reach inside those prison walls. It's going to determine how you're going to come out of it. And after and you, if you don't want to bring a different man. If if every man who commits a crime and goes to prison, and he doesn't work on himself to bring home a different man to his family, mm-hmm. other than the same one who left him, what is he coming out of? Yeah, after you got out, what were like some of the biggest struggles that you faced? Learning that there's no more sense of community. Struggling on how to adjust to this new societal norm where everyone has become an individual. Because I had to do a lot of empirical observations when I got out. So I rode the train a lot. I wanted to see how people interacted with each other. I wanted to see what the social norms was. I wanted to see what the sub-social norm was, subcultural norms, how things is going out here. And so I took in everything and I had to adjust myself a lot because it wasn't the same society that I left. Yeah. Every, it's You understand things have changed dramatically. Yeah. I mean, so technology I to, too. Well, I stayed abreast with technology because I read Wired magazines. I read the Wall Street Journal. 
every day. I read books on real estate. I've read the Chinese economy. <laughs> I've read Colin Powell's My American Journey. I've read so many books in there because reading is, is fundamental. Yeah. Right. So I conditioned myself for one day coming out of it because I still had that hope that one day I would get out. And I worked on myself. I read the, the dictionary a lot. I used to take five words every day, study to build my vocabulary. And one book changed my whole life, Malcolm X's autobiography. He went, for, went to jail with a third grade education. And he left out of prison with heads of states and dignitaries fearing. They feared him so much that they killed him. They feared his, his vocabulary. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know he went in with a third grade education. Yeah, he, 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 his name was Red. <laughs> he went in with a third grade education and he left out of there practically a scholar from the dictionary. Because words would communicate with and people respect you if you can if you can facilitate a proper sentence. Yeah, that's right? true. That's true. If you have the proper word, people fear you. Build your vocabulary. Just take five words every day. Write them in a sentence. And that's write write them in sentences and, and stuff. And you'll see you'll see a change. People will you'll start to fear people. me. People know well. People will certainly respect you. Yeah, true. They will respect, you. and you will respect yourself because you will feel that 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 respect from them. And you know that your hard work, that the time that you took, was to progress and better yourself. It's about putting time into yourself, also. Self care. You know, we can get distracted, and outward things take everything away from us. But we're not focusing on building ourselves. You have to think about putting yourself in a position 10 years from now. So you put things in place. Now you start to work on putting things in place to where you want to be there. Yeah, it's like chess. Think five minutes ahead. Vision yourself far 10 years from now. What condition are you going to be? Where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Oh, um, retired. I'll be fifty. Retired with a castle on a on a beach in Santo Domingo. Oh, that sounds great. I just bought a beach. Really? I bought a few apartment buildings and a beach. I'm gonna use the apartment buildings and put them on Expedia. Oh, cool. Yeah, I put them on Expedia or Airbnb because they're like one and two bedrooms. With everything furnished, everything, and I have five. I bought five acres of beachfront land, so I'll use the money that I make on Expedia from those that investment to build the castle with all of those rocks that you know the rocks like they used to build before, like the the fort. Yeah, this beach has a lot of that, so I'm gonna do that in in Puerto Plata. That's amazing. And then I was just wondering, do you have like any 
last words of advice for the people who listen to the podcast? It's mostly like college students and high school students. Well, they're going to be confronted with a lot of problems in their life. Unforeseen problems. But no matter what, you get through it. No matter what problem you're facing, you're going to get through it. Because you're going to find that strength inside you. Everyone has it. Don't think that just because I went through that and got out of it and I had this super strength. No, I had to dig deep. I had to dig really deep inside myself to find it. And I'm sure once you get into a problem and you feel that you can't get out of it, you're going to start digging. And you're going to find what you need to get out of it. So don't worry. Problems is going to come. They're guaranteed in life. And besides that, keep your head up. Keep your head up and die on your feet, not on your knees. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emma. Take care.